The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com. Page 982, Philippians chapter 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Good morning, everyone. How's everyone today? Let's pray one more time. Go to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. Your word is true. Your word reveals yourself to us. Father, I pray that um, I'll be faithful to your word. That what I speak will be true. I pray that it will be received with gladness. I pray that the gospel will be heard and received with gladness. And Lord, I need your help. It's an awesome privilege to be able to stand up here and preach your word, and I, I pray that I do it faithfully and glorify you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, thank you. Uh, today, we're going to talk about peace. What is it? How do we experience it? Who here likes peace? Who among us desires peace? I think it's safe to say that everybody seeks peace. We look for peace, we long for peace. My entire life, there's been a call for world peace. I mean, you've heard that, right? Everyone's asked for world peace, calling out for peace. Politicians promise peace. Books are written on how to get peace. Commercials, you'll see a lot of them today if you watch the Super Bowl, they're all geared to help you find peace, right? If you buy your product, It'll, it'll satisfy something that's missing in your life and you'll have peace. But when we look around the world, peace seems to be as elusive as it, as it is desired. Oh, thank you. The world is in turmoil. There are so many attacks on peace, from thefts, deceit, injustices, diseases, illness, wars, both with bombs and with words. Relationships blow up, finances, the money runs out before the month ends, or you have worries about retirement. Or, as many of us has experienced, when a loved one lies helpless in the bed and you're just waiting for the inevitable. All these things, they create anxiety, helplessness, and worry. But God is the God of peace who wants us to experience his peace. Let me say it again. God is the God of peace who wants us to experience his peace. So how is God the God of peace? Well, before you came to believe in God, he was your enemy, a very formidable enemy. It's not that he was a mean guy or anything, but 
Let's face it, you picked a fight with the most powerful being in the universe. You were at war with him. But he's also the best enemy you could possibly have because he went to great lengths to make peace with you. See, we came into this world rebelling against God. We hated God. I hated God. You know, if you ask me back when I was his enemy, I, I could have checked all the boxes. Jesus, Son of God, check. Died on the cross for my sins, check. Rose from the dead, check. But when I was confronted with the reality of who Jesus was, and especially the reality of my sin, I didn't like him. Because I was self-righteous. It wasn't that, you know, it wasn't all the things I did. You know, I was a good person, but it wasn't because of the things I did. It was all the things I didn't do. You know, I didn't do this. I didn't do that. I didn't do the other. And by golly, people like me. Why wouldn't God want me in heaven, in this heaven? I mean, I, I got stiff-necked about it. Can you all relate to that? But God revealed Jesus to me, and I saw his beauty. And with it, I, I, I came to a realization that I wasn't a good person. Maybe the world thinks so, but I wasn't. And, and God changed my heart. He made peace with me. He made peace with me. And, and these are the lengths that God went through to make peace with me, and he went through to make peace with us. See, God sent his son, his only son, Jesus, to this earth. And Jesus lived a perfect life, always pleasing to God the Father. There was not one moment where Jesus did not love his father, worship his father, obey his father, in, in, as God deserves to be loved. He deserves to be loved. And God placed his son, his only son, in whom he loved and was well pleased, on a wooden cross. Before that, he was whipped, he was beaten, he had the hair of his beard pulled out. They put a crown of thorns on thorns like this and just mashes on his head before they nailed, put nails through his wrists and his feet, hang him on the cross where he suffocates and dies. And while there, God placed all of your sins upon him. All your present sins, your past sins, your future sins, all of them. He placed it on his son. And there, he crushed his son on that cross as a substitute for me. Because that should have been me up there on that cross. And the offense that I had against God, that should have been me taking that punishment. But God gave Jesus what I deserved. And that satisfied God's judgment or satisfy God's justice. Your sins were paid for. But it doesn't end there because he was placed in a tomb. And to show how God was pleased with his sacrifice, he raised him from the dead. So in love, God placed all of your sins on Jesus, giving you the righteousness of Christ. And now, in, as Paul wrote in Romans 5.1, it says, Therefore, since we've been satisfied by faith, we have Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We are justified. What does justified mean? Justified means that we are declared righteous in the sight of God. This is a legal transaction. Your sins, paid for. Paid for. Then, if we are justified, then you have peace with God through Jesus Christ. He is no longer your enemy. 
And this is how God is a God of peace. In Christ, he makes peace between himself and us. Do you remember the day when you first, remember, when you first believed? I mean, it was a pretty sweet moment, wasn't it? If you're here today and you haven't believed, I urge you to do so now because without faith in Christ, you will never have peace with God. If you do not have peace with God, you will never experience the peace of God. So now in Christ, we have peace with God. But yet so often we find ourselves not experiencing the peace of God. Can you feel that? Does that happen to you? I mean, too often, I know it happens all with new Christians, I guess we have this expectation that once we believe in Jesus that we will not experience conflict or, or suffering or anxiety. But the God of peace wants us to experience the peace of God. So how do you experience the peace of God with the God of peace? Well, we're going to follow the example of Paul. If you look in verse 9, he says, What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. So who is Paul? Well, Paul is an apostle of Jesus Christ. He was appointed and given the authority by Christ to preach the gospel, the gospel being the good news of Jesus Christ. And only a few were chosen to be apostles. And these were delegates. They were ambassadors of the gospel. And they were sent by God. So we have to trust the apostles. The Christian faith was built upon the backs of, of, of the efforts of, and the suffering of these men. And Paul was one of them. So we really need to watch and learn from him. And follow his example. And he is probably the best example other than the Lord himself. And he shows us how to experience peace. Notice one thing here, that peace is something to be learned. A few uh, verses beyond our passage, in verse 11, Paul says he learned how to experience peace. In verse 11, he says, For I learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Peace is also practiced. I mean, what you learn, you practice, right? Whether, whether it's sports, whether it's academics, whatever it is, you learn something. If you want to get good at it, if you want to get better at it, you have to practice it. And Paul says, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And the God of peace will be with you. So how do you experience the peace of God with the God of peace? What do we have to learn and practice? We're going to see four things. We're going to focus on four things. We're going to focus on rejoicing. We're going to focus on community. Focus on prayer with thanksgiving. And we're going to focus on what is lovely. Again, we're going to focus on rejoicing, focus on community, focus on praying, and focus on what is lovely. In verse 4, Paul writes, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Here, Paul is commanding us to rejoice. It's repeated. Rejoice. Again, I will say, rejoice. But is it, does it seem probable? It probably, probably doesn't seem reasonable to rejoice in obedience to a command, much less always, right? It doesn't seem reasonable. 
And can we truly rejoice when past sins invade our thoughts? Or when loved ones are suffering? Or when you are suffering? Paul, I'm sorry, man, but you don't know what I'm going through. I mean, you have no idea the, the pain, the suffering, the things that have happened to me. But Paul knows suffering. The man suffered. This is what happened to Paul. Five times he was whipped with 39 lashes. Three times beaten with rods. Once stoned within an inch of his life. And that means when you pick up rocks, you can hurl them at the guy until he dies. The Lord delivered him from that. Uh, three times he was shipwrecked, imprisoned numerous times. In fact, he wrote this letter while in prison. The persecutions was, of Christians were such that undoubtedly friends of his had been uh, imprisoned, probably murdered because of their faith. He was in danger from rivers, from robbers, his own people, Gentiles, in the city, in the wilderness, at sea. This probably gave him the most consternation, false brothers. And these were people that would go into churches or cities after he leaves and try to undermine what he had taught. Now, this is not a suffering contest. I don't share these things with you so that, oh, gee, my suffering is insignificant compared to Paul. That's not what this is about because I know your suffering is real. The pain is real. And Paul would be the first to be empathetic to you. He wouldn't be sympathetic, but he would empathize with your suffering. And at the same time, with authority, he can command us to rejoice. See, we can suffer and still have joy because joy is not happiness. You can certainly be happy and joyful at the same time. In fact, most times you're happy, you are joyful. But happiness is also based on circumstances. And sadness, also based on circumstances, is not the opposite of joy. Because you can be sad and joyful at the same time because joy remains even in the midst of suffering. I like John Piper's quote, his definition of joy. He says, it's a good feeling in the soul. I mean, that means it's deep down. It has, it's not circumstantial. It's deep down in your soul. It's inside you. Good feeling in the soul produced by the Holy Spirit by causing me to see the glory and beauty of Jesus Christ in his word and in his work. This is how deep joy is. Tim Keller puts it simply, and this is my personal favorite, he calls it mirth. <laughs> so how do you find joy in the midst of suffering? How does Paul do it? See, Paul is not rejoicing in his problems. because In his circumstances, he has sorrow. He has a heavy heart. But he rejoices in the Lord. The same person can say, in my circumstances, I have sorrow, but in my relationship to Jesus, I have constant joy. And how is this? Well, he stands on the rock of what he knows. He knows that God is eternal. He lives in eternity, reigns in eternity. There's no beginning. There's no end. He knows that God is self-existent. He knows that God is holy. The world does not affect him. He's in control. He will not make a mistake. He will always do what is right and good. He knows that God is almighty. He's strong and powerful and always at work. He remembers his surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus as his Lord. And as he famously wrote in Romans 8, 28, he knows that for those who love God, all things work for good for those who are called according to his purpose. 
See, what happens in this life cannot compare to the riches and glory and, and, and everything that God has promised for us. See, we have been given the righteousness of Christ. We've been united with him as life and his death and resurrection. And our citizenship is in heaven where there's a glorious, eternal, incorruptible, undefiled inheritance waiting for us. As he wrote earlier in this letter to the Philippians, he said to live is Christ and die is gain. Jesus, Jesus is my joy. Jesus is my joy. And biblical joy is rooted in a deep and profound reality as the celebration of the victory of Christ. Our oneness with Christ, the fruit of whose spirit is joy. And there's also a spiritual buoyancy Spiritual buoyancy, which comes with rejoicing in God. So, you know, we're, we become unsinkable. Might get wet, might get splashed a bit, but, you know, we, it can't hold us down. Our suffering cannot hold us down. Because God is for us. And if God is for us, who could be against us? Joy is the confidence and trust in God's wise control of your life. It comes with the assurance of your salvation. You have to realize, please realize that, you know, you've got the only thing that matters. You have God himself. The more you rejoice in the Lord, the more you're able to withstand the things that are causing your suffering. And that allows you to, to have peace, experience peace, even in the midst of suffering. So we want to be an imitator of Paul. Focus on rejoicing. The more you focus on joy, the more you'll grow and develop within the, those that have peace with God. So rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Secondly, focus on community. Verse 5 says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Now reasonableness means having sound judgment, being fair and sensible, right? I'm not a Greek scholar, I'm not a Greek expert, I don't even know enough Greek to be dangerous, unfortunately. But, you know, when I study for the times I do preach, uh, every once in a while, the Greek word just has to be presented. And in this case, the word that we translate as reasonableness in Greek is epi case. What epi case means, it means forbearance, moderation, yieldedness, geniality, kindliness, considerateness, magnanimity, that's another word, generosity, charitableness, gentleness, gentle spirit, big-heartedness, big-heartedness. See, there, there isn't a single English word to fully express what Paul is trying to say here. You know, it takes a combination of all those words to fully describe what we translate as, as reasonableness or epi case. So, so Paul here is teaching that peace cannot be attained by those who are selfish, by those who insist on getting in their way. You know, we live in a culture that celebrates individualism and self-promotion, and that individualism brings autonomy instead of biblical community. And I'm sure we've all known people, and I hope I'm not one of those, but some people can be quite aggressive and assertive, and they're dealing with people, Right? They don't care who they hurt as long as they get their way. They don't know how to adjust to people, to be gentle, big, uh, gentle-hearted, or big-hearted. 
But Christianity calls believers to love and serve others. And the secret to this joy and peace is to be big-hearted to everyone. I like that term, big-hearted. It's not just those in church. As Paul wrote in the second letter to Timothy, uh, verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 24, he said, The Lord's servant must, be not, must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone. And unfortunately, a lot of people have negative views of Christianity based upon their interactions with Christians. We won't dive into that, but, you know, it happens. And Lord help us, I, I pray that that is not true of any of us here. But the Christian cannot be truly joyful and, and at peace in, unless he is being a blessing to everyone. Earlier in this letter in Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 3, Paul writes, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves, that each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. This is a call to us to, to love each other, help each other, minister to each other, be there for each other. And unfortunately, we're, we're still sinners, right? I mean, it's unfortunate when someone gets hurt in church. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but has it happened to you? Have you been hurt in a church? I mean, it's awful when that happens. It's awful when it happens to you, and it's awful when you're the cause of it. I mean, these things are real. They're real. They're painful. And it happens so easily, right? A misunderstood or careless remark. You know, I, I like to keep things lighthearted. I like to try to make people laugh. And, but every once in a while, something would be much funnier rattling around the inside of my skull than they are out in the atmosphere. And, you know, I go, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean that. That's not what I meant. That came out all wrong. You know, please forgive me. And hopefully I have offended a big-hearted Christian and they'll be quick to forgive me. But that's how easy it happens. The gentle-hearted Christian, the, the, the big-hearted Christian will seek to foster peace. They'll be the first one to own up to their mistake. And they'll be eager to, to apologize and reconcile. And what about the person that was wronged? What about the person that was hurt? You know, what do they do to foster peace? Well, the first thing is don't let it fester inside you. Don't let it build up. It just becomes even worse. I mean, go to that brother or sister. Go to them. Tell them, look, you hurt me when whatever it was. Whatever it was. Be big-hearted to each other. If you've been wronged by someone, by a brother or sister, go to them. If you wronged a brother or sister, reconcile with them. Focus on community. Foster peace. Because the Christian is the person who, who reason is far better to suffer wrong than, than to inflict wrong. Foster peace. Be reconciled. Be gentle-hearted. Be big-hearted. Big-hearted. Paul writes in the second letter to the Corinthians in chapter 10, verse 1, he says, I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I mean, here's Paul. He's meek. He's gentle as Christ. You know, I hope, I hope one day the Lord will, would grant me that, to be that way. Be meek and gentle like Christ. And we can see Paul's gentleness in action in this, in this chapter, in chapter 4. Just for our passage, there's two ladies in verse 2 who are having a, a conflict, Euodia and, and Suntuhe. I mean, these are two ladies that are very dear to Paul, very dear to Paul, and it breaks his heart they're, they're fighting. 
And in verse 3 of chapter 4, uh, Paul says, Yes, I also ask, I ask you also, true companion, some, some uh, Bibles say true yoke fellow, help these women who've labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Now, he refers to these two ladies as, as fellow workers of the gospel. They're partners with them. He loves these two ladies, and it breaks his heart that they're quarreling. In order to foster peace, he's, he's asking uh, another person within the church to go to these ladies, help them reconcile. And again, I'm going to go to the Greek, because if you read that, that verse, verse 3, it kind of reads kind of funny, at least it did to me. When it says, yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women. I mean, it's kind of funny. But the Greek there is a word called zizigus. And zizigus means true yoke fellow, or as we translate, true companion. And every, every commentator I've read, they all say that this is actually a man's name. He's asking zizigus to help these ladies. And it reads better too. Yes, I ask you also, zizigus, help these women. So, He's enlisting Zizigus to foster peace within his community. He, he wants to foster peace. We see it in his first letter to the Corinthians. Yeah, he's upset with how they're acting, but the main goal is to foster peace, to get them to find peace. So we're focusing on joy. We have joy within because our joy is in the Lord. We're focusing on community. We're being big-hearted, and we're fostering peace. And now... Thirdly, we're going to focus on prayer. We're going to pray with thanksgiving rather than being anxious. End of verse 5 says, The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Now we have prayerful trusting in God above. And Paul says, beginning, The Lord is at hand. Now, there's a question. Is he referring to the second coming? Because I haven't done extensive research there. I've read some that say yes, some that say no, but I don't think for our purposes or even for the chapter itself it matters. Because regardless, we can confidently say that the Lord is, is at hand and the Lord is near, right? He is at hand. Psalm 34, 18 says, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Psalm 148, 18 says, The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. As Jesus said, Matthew, I am with you always. So the Lord is at hand. He is, he is near. And since we can control the, since we can trust that the Lord is good and that he is in control, therefore, do not be anxious about anything. Stop being anxious. Sounds pretty simple, doesn't it? See, it's one thing to have genuine concern about someone or something. There's nothing wrong with that. But what Paul is talking about here is undue, undue concern about something, to be filled with anxiety, to worry about something. Because the opposite of peace is anxiety. And when you're anxious, you don't have peace. And when you're anxious, you're showing a lack of trust in God. You think, God, I don't, I don't think you can handle this. I don't think you're big enough. I don't think you're strong enough. I don't think you really know what's going on here. But having a lack of joy and being anxious 
both show the same thing. It shows a lack of trust in God, in God's per person, provision, and promises. So when you're anxious, you can't see God's goodness, and therefore there is no peace. So what's the answer to this? How can you not be anxious? Well, the cure for worry is thankful prayer. Thankful prayer. As Paul says, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So what is thankfulness? What is thankfulness? Well, that is a feeling or expression of, uh, sorry, it's a feeling of, a, of a, feeling an expression of gratitude. It's being appreciative, being appreciative. So we are, in this, in this prayer, we're earnestly and humbly and thankfully making our petitions known to God. And when we thank him, we're acknowledging that God is good all the time. We're acknowledging our God is sovereign, that he's in control, and he orchestrates all things for our good and his glory. And praying with thanksgiving implies humility and submission to God's will. And notice we also thank him before he responds. Right? Whatever, we, whatever he decides is wise and good. And so we're saying, Lord, whatever you do in response to this prayer, response to this request is good, and I thank you for that. If I'm asking at the wrong time, and you don't answer, I thank you for it. If you give me the opposite of, of what I want, and even if it causes me pain and anguish, I thank you for that, because I know that you're wise, I know that you're in control, and I know that you will do what's best. Again, looking at Paul, he begins each of his letters, each of his letters with an outpouring of thanksgiving to God. Again and again, he insists on the necessity of giving thanks. So what should we pray for? Well, everything. Everything. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, let your requests be made known to God. And of course, the context here is all such circumstances which causes you to worry. Cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Now, when you're anxious, you cannot see God's goodness. Therefore, you have no peace. So praying with thanksgiving causes us to focus on his goodness and then anxiety melts away. And the result there is if the joy of the Lord reigns in your heart and you're a big-hearted Christian fostering peace in your community and you're constantly thanking God in prayer instead of being anxious, verse 7 says, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You will have the peace of God. Now, this is a peace that God possesses and gives to us. He's, he's the source of peace. He's the maker of peace. And he's the one who gives peace. And there is no true and lasting peace apart from him. This is a God-given reward resulting from rejoicing in the Lord, being big-hearted big towards your neighbor, and trustful prayer to God. And it surpasses all understanding. All understanding. What does that mean? Well, it means that this peace of God, like the love of Christ, is unfathomable. It will never plummet its depths. We cannot comprehend this wonderful peace, just as we cannot comprehend the wonderful love of Christ. And we'll never be able to fully grasp the beauty of this priceless Christ-centered gift. And this peace will guard our heart and mind in Christ Jesus. So imagine the strongest army in the world surrounding a city to protect it, 
I mean, nothing's going to prevail against this army. Nothing's going to get to that city. And much more so will God's peace mount guard at the door of our heart and thought. So we will have the joy within because our joy is in the Lord. We're rejoicing, focusing on joy. We're being big-hearted, fostering peace, focusing on community. We're praying with thanksgiving, focusing on prayer, result being the peace of God. Finally, we're going to focus on things that are lovely. Verse 8, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Now this is a call for right thinking. And not just to think, but to meditate, to dwell on these things. It's, it's called a wisdom and discernment. See, all of our sin starts in our thought, right? I mean, no one commits outward sins without first thinking about them. Do you know what else begins in our mind? Anxiety. Anxiety. So to combat sin and anxiety, Paul, Paul tells us to think on things that are lovely. Now Paul gives us eight things to think about. Number one, whatever is true. Okay. I'm not going to go through all of them in detail. That's another whole sermon in itself, and I don't want to increase your anxiety. So we'll just take it all as, as a group here. But he gives us eight things to think about. If we want to grow in, in, holy, in godliness, we have to win the battle over sin and anxiety in our mind. To not, to not be anxious, but rather to be joyful. See, our thinking is something we must take charge over. To be intentional about focusing our mind on, on things that are lovely. And, and Paul is saying here that you've got to learn to think on the right things. Think carefully and deeply about uh, the right things. To think in a God-honoring way. To have a Christian thought life. And since our thoughts form the basis of our behavior, thinking in a godly way is essential to be obedient to what Paul exhorts us in verse 9, which is, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. See, Paul wants these lovely things to shape our conduct, to think about these things with the aim to do them. And thinking on these things is essential if you want to have a prayer life of thankfulness, to have a life of joy, to, if you want to experience peace. And besides, what is, more honor, what is more true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, and worthy of praise than God himself? How did deal, Paul deal with his suffering? By directing his mind on who God is and what he's done, what he's promised through his son, Jesus Christ. How did Paul foster peace in his community? By being big-hearted, by directing his mind on community and the gentleness of Christ. How did Paul avoid being anxious? By directing his mind on being thankful in prayer. Focus on things that are lovely. Direct your focus towards Jesus Christ. See, peace is within our grasp. Practice these things. You've learned them, now practice them. Focus on joy. Rejoice in the Lord. Focus on community. Foster peace. Focus on prayer. Pray with thanksgiving instead of being anxious. And focus on what is lovely. Direct your mind on, on these things. And you will experience the peace of God with the God of peace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are near and the giver of peace.
We thank you that you have made peace with us. We ask that you will make peace with those that do not know your peace yet. And we ask that we will be big-hearted towards everyone. We pray that in the midst of suffering, you will remind us of who we are in Christ. We are your child. Father, we thank you for your goodness and that you hear our prayers. And may your grace and peace be with us. In that son's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. And we invite you to visit us Sunday mornings here at Fountain of Life Fellowship. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com.